Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Modern societies have settled for a kind of lukewarm tolerance. A tolerance that undermines what it purports to allow. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. This gives the unmistakable impression that religious practice is essentially a sort of leisure activity. Probably harmless, but definitely marginal to the main business of society. Rowan Williams is the former Archbishop of Canterbury. He's also the second speaker in this year's BBC Wreath Lectures. The Wreaths are the BBC's flagship lecture series. They usually feature one speaker delving into an issue of debate over four lectures. But this year's series is a little different. Four speakers, all tackling the theme of freedom. This lecture is supposed to be about freedom of worship. Surely, the real priority for an enlightened society is the freedom to follow our consciences. Why bring in worship? In this lecture, Williams argues that secular society has forgotten what freedom of worship really means that it is more than just the freedom to believe. Part of what you believe is that your purpose as a human being is to make visible something of who God is and what God has done. From Swansea in Wales, this is Rowan Williams with the second of this year's BBC Reef Lectures. Well, that's my father. I'm going Thank you very much indeed for being here, for the invitation to deliver the lecture. It's a pleasure and a privilege, a pleasure to be back in Swansea, a privilege to be able to deliver one of the wreath lectures. And so to begin, let me set the scene in Pennsylvania. It's a row over land. A private oil company has seized some farmland to build a natural gas pipeline. The landowners are not happy and have gone to court. So far, so familiar. But here's what's unusual. The farmland belongs to a Catholic women's religious order. And the nuns have argued that the pipeline violates their rights to liberty, specifically religious liberty. Every day since October 2018, said one of the sisters, as fossil fuel gas flows through our farmland, so also flows Transco's blatant disregard and trampling of our religious beliefs. Really? Some might ask. On the face of it, it's a startling application of the language of religious freedom. The sisters are describing the legally authorised seizure of the field as an offence against religious liberty, because it forces the community into complicity with new fossil fuel exploitation. And they hold this to be contrary to their religiously grounded beliefs about environmental responsibility. Is this a credible argument? 
Is there really any problem here for the sisters' religious freedom? Surely no one is trying to deny them the liberty to believe what they want. So let's take a step back and look for a moment at the language involved. This lecture is supposed to be about freedom of worship. But the vocabulary of human rights discussions more often refers to freedom of religion and belief as one of the fundamental pillars of social liberty. Surely, the real priority for an enlightened society is the freedom to follow our consciences. Why bring in worship? Well, this wording has its roots in a very specific historical setting. Most European nations in the century or so after the Reformation restricted the public manifestation of religious conviction. In 16th century England, you might believe in, let's say, devotion to the saints or the real presence of Jesus in the Mass, but if you gathered with others and held services in which you acted on these beliefs, you'd be in trouble. And this was a problem, because if the language of faith meant what it said, then believing certain things to be true entail the obligation to act accordingly, whether in daily life or in shared worship. It's not much use being allowed to hold Catholic opinions, but denied the possibility of going to Mass. Now, as any Jew, Muslim, Hindu or Buddhist would have confirmed, the notion that religious conviction as such is basically a private affair was a problematic new idea. Religious commitment in the non-modern and non-Western context requires actions, both moral and ritual, in which you say and show what you believe. Part of what you believe is that your purpose as a human being is to make visible something of who God is and what God has done. And whatever caricatures may be around in the Western mind, it makes no sense at all to say that you can be a Buddhist, say, simply in virtue of holding certain ideas. Something has to change in your visible behaviour, in the rhythms and habits of your body. Modern societies have settled for a kind of lukewarm tolerance, a recognition that within reasonable limits of public order, people may conduct whatever rituals they please because none of this should impinge on the way they make significant decisions or order their civic and personal lives. But this gives the unmistakable impression that religious practice is essentially a sort of leisure activity. Probably harmless, but definitely marginal to the main business of society. It's the kind of repressive tolerance that some radical social theorists of the 60s identified. A tolerance that undermines what it purports to allow. And this is where I want to argue that a lot more is involved. The controversial further dimension that the sisters in Pennsylvania were appealing to. But arguing for this perspective relates directly, and perhaps unexpectedly, to how far a self-styled liberal society remains capable of asking itself serious critical questions. Now, people who follow a traditional religious discipline understand the whole of their human life to be tied up with the business of attuning oneself to and communicating the nature of the sacred. A Jew keeping the Sabbath is announcing that the rhythm of their week is shaped by a story which establishes how God relates to the world. Renouncing any kind of active business for one day of the week 
keeps us aware that we do not always have to maximise the use of time for our own safety, advantage or profit. Quite the contrary. We are obliged to remember, for 24 hours or so, our unconditional dependence. A dependence on a grace that we have not earned or created for ourselves. The same kind of perspective will be at work in how a Muslim understands keeping Ramadan. The self-restraint and generous almsgiving expected during Ramadan display a crucial conviction about human life and the sacred environment in which it takes place. So the practices involved are more than simply occasional acts of decorous or picturesque religious ceremony. In these cases, they alter the Jewish or Muslim individual's engagement with society. And this might prompt society at large to try and restrict their practices when they become inconvenient. Broadening the picture a bit, most of us will remember the case of a Coptic Christian from Egypt working for an airline. Uniform rules prohibited her wearing a cross around her neck. She argued that for her tradition, the wearing of a cross was not an optional bit of decoration, but a statement of faithfulness on the part of a disadvantaged and harassed minority. And the Pennsylvanian nuns are objecting that the integrity of their actual physical witness to their belief, their freedom to communicate what they hold to be true of God's relation to the world, is fatally compromised if their property is forcibly used in a way which contradicts what they hold to be true. Well, try thinking of worship in this sort of context. Not just as an occasional public ceremony, but as the appropriate real-world response to and expression of commitment to a certain kind of supposed truth. A truth which determines the options we have for relating to one another as persons in society. If this makes sense, then freedom of worship is an intrinsic aspect of the freedom to manifest belief, which is the phrasing used in Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And manifesting belief, it seems, is not just about being able to say what you think in abstract terms. It's not even about your sacred rituals being more or less tolerated. It's about the freedom to conduct yourself in a certain way. Understanding your pattern of life as communicating something more than just your individual wants or feelings, because it's answerable to something more than just your own judgment or just the prevailing social consensus. And it may indeed be challenging for that consensus or majority opinion, as it is challenging for your own individual comfort or preference. Now this is where things can become really complicated. Let's start at the simpler end. We can tell stories of how this understanding of freedom fuels and motivates resistance to gross injustice. Like that of Maria Skoptsova, a Russian émigré in Paris, who became a nun and worked with both Russian and Jewish refugees in the 1930s. She would speak of how the liturgy of the church, its solemn public worship, should leak out of the church door and dictate the priorities of life in the wider world. And this was what led her to increasingly risky ventures in saving Parisian Jews during the German occupation, and led eventually to her arrest and execution 
in Ravensbrück concentration camp in 1944. Or again, in the South Africa of the 1950s, the Anglican authorities, rather slowly and reluctantly, as you might expect from good Anglicans, <laughs> decided that they could not operate schools for the African population under apartheid law. If they reorganized these schools on the basis of racial discrimination, they would be actively promoting a belief which they completely repudiated. So they closed their schools rather than betray their conviction. So far, so good. But what about the issues that are more immediate just at the moment? What about the evangelical registrar who will not solemnize same-sex marriages? What about the legal allowances made for Catholic doctors who will not perform abortions? Just how disruptive can the public manifestation of convictions be allowed to become in a diverse society? Well, questions like these have become weaponized in the current culture wars raging across North Atlantic societies in particular, in ways that more or less rule out nuanced exploration of what's going on. So again, it helps to pause for breath and draw some necessary distinctions. One of the most neglected points of traditional moral theology is the recognition of the rights of consciences, even when we think they're misinformed or misdirected. It won't do to demonize those with inconvenient consciences as automatically monstrous and oppressive. You can't simply ascribe deliberately evil intention to someone who disagrees on principle with the principles that you think are self-evident. Think, for example, of the debates over abortion or physician-assisted dying. The tendency in quite a lot of contemporary liberal rhetoric is to characterize people with objections to such practices as just being in thrall to archaic and arbitrary rules, committed to indefensible models of control and coercion exercised over the bodies of others. But of course, on the other side, we're familiar with traditional believers describing the options they disapprove of as simply the fruit of unbridled individualism and undisciplined self-will. Both perspectives are equally unreasonable, and finding any meeting ground will require recognition that an opponent just might have comparable values and goals, or at least values and goals that make some sense and allow some mutual exploring. And this cuts both ways, of course. The person who holds on to a traditionally sanctioned religious morality must avoid simply mirroring the mistakes of the dogmatic liberal, using tactics like the violent intimidation of others and efforts to reverse legal decisions endorsed by clear majorities, because these poison the wells of honest moral argument. Anti-abortion activists should be wary of unequivocally celebrating the United States Supreme Court's recent reversal of the Roe v. Wade decision, which had granted a federal right to the termination of pregnancy. They should be wary of endorsing methods used to achieve this result that involve literal or procedural violence. Because this invites equally non-consensual, violent, absolutist reprisals, if and when the political balance of power alters. And again, in the case of individuals seeking opt-outs on the grounds of conscience, like the Catholic doctor refusing to perform an abortion, they would be on shaky ground if they demanded a wider right to prevent others from acting or to restrict public access to legally established liberties. 
a legal exemption which allows an employee to avoid directly performing an action believed to be intrinsically wrong is one thing. But it's clearly different from allowing the employee to refuse to grant simple legal recognition to choices made by others that are wholly within the law. Arguably, like the registrar refusing to authorise a same-sex marriage, the degrees of agency or involvement are different. So it's a complex picture. But essentially, when the shouting has died down, what's at stake in all this is the freedom to believe that certain human actions and policies derive their goodness or rightness not from consensus or even legality, but from something more lasting, something about the way things are, and the freedom to organise your actions, public and private, on that basis. It's the freedom to see your human choices and habits as part of an attempt to discover some kind of fit with a reality that is quite outside human control. To see ethics as tied up with a process of discovering what is lastingly appropriate for the kind of beings that human beings are in the kind of world that this world is. Of course, post-Enlightenment societies are habitually uncomfortable with this language, for they quite understandably see a risk in any kind of appeal to authority that doesn't rest on some kind of publicly accountable process, like democratically decided laws. It risks becoming an appeal to a privileged insight that can't be challenged, and so it can become another form of violent and coercive behaviour. We can't forget that the claim to transcendent authority was a crucial element in the protection of social privilege, guaranteeing that other voices could be silenced. And the liberating of such other voices, women, sexual minorities, ethnic and ideological others, has been an unequivocally positive aspect of post-Enlightenment culture. And yet we are reminded more or less daily how appallingly incomplete that liberation still is. Whether our eyes turn to Iran or nearer home. Indeed, the history of the last couple of centuries suggests that the rational obviousness of our modern morality is a good deal more fragile than we might like to think. It isn't quite enough to appeal to self-evident truths or to the steady advance of ethical sensitivity through history. The crucial belief that there are moral truths independent of how things happen to turn out, or the current of cultural agreement, or the prevailing majority view at any one point, this is what makes moral argument possible. Because this is what allows us to ask of any prevailing consensus, but is it just? Does it actually guarantee human beings what is absolutely due to them? Anything else takes us straight back to a more refined variety of coercion by majorities. So, when the religious believer says, I claim the right to dissent because I claim the right to shape my life according to convictions that show me how things really are, such a person is in effect saying to the majority or consensus view, give me some arguments to justify your view that go beyond the sheer weight of numbers and what most of you happen to feel. The power of numbers and of shared feeling 
may guarantee that something becomes and remains technically lawful. But if lawfulness itself is no more than what the majority happens to be happy with, there will never be a rationale for criticism and resistance. There will never be a process of further learning. And there's the rub. We have learned our convictions through history. We can't appeal with any credibility to natural and indisputable evidence. A huge range of cultural factors and conflicts has brought us to the positions we hold. And many of those factors are based, at best, pretty loosely on consistent argument. And we have learned what we have learned because certain older consensus views have been challenged and to a greater or lesser degree argued down. The end of slavery, the revolution in the status of women, the recognition of same-sex attraction as something other than a pathology. All these things required substantial shifts in what was taken for granted. They required something of the energy of absolute conviction, the sense that some sorts of inequality and discrimination were nakedly at odds with human dignity. Or, to put it another way, they required some deeply grounded intuitions about what were and were not fitting ways of treating members of the human race. And what brought these intuitions to light was, more often than we regularly suppose, something like religious conviction. Sometimes literally so. But it is equally true that some of the most overwhelming forces opposing radical change were also fueled by religious conviction. True and unsurprising. Because human cultures work like that. Religious belief may be transcendentally justified, but it's also, in practice, a human culture. That's to say, it is itself engaged in learning. What is distinctive about it is the strength of its belief that it's dealing with aspects of humanity and the world that are not up for negotiation and can't be voted into irrelevance. And this may be welcome reinforcement to modern liberal ethics when certain topics are in view and much less welcome with other matters. Green nuns in Pennsylvania are one thing. Supposedly homophobic registrars are another. But the main thing is that the presence within a society of people with strong commitments about what is due to human dignity puts a certain kind of pressure on the whole social environment, a pressure to argue for and justify what society licenses or defends in terms that go beyond popular consensus alone. In other words, it helps to guarantee that argument about issues from environmental responsibility to sexual politics will have an element of real moral debate, debate about the kind of beings human beings are. The state may well shape its legislation on the basis of what the majority will be able to live with. Fair enough. But if this is the only or the dominant consideration, there will be no element of critical energy in public debate, the sort of critical energy that can actually challenge consensus and change the law on the basis of a developing sense of what is due to humanity as such. 
This is perhaps why that great 19th century historian and political moralist, Lord Acton, claimed that religious freedom was the cornerstone of all political freedoms. He was arguing, I think, that religious freedom rested on the conviction that human beings have a nature endowed with intrinsic dignity, intrinsic qualities, a location in the world, and a responsibility to something more than what existing forms of power might find convenient. And he implies that this conviction is what allows the very idea of political argument about the common good, an open debate about whether certain forms of governance adequately respect human dignity, to get off the ground. Very simply, it guards against absolutizing the status quo. Conscientious dissent and ongoing public moral debate are part of the lifeblood of a viable and critical society. If we drive out any element in society which makes its decisions and shapes its policies on the grounds of convictions about what is simply given in the human situation, about what the ultimate context is of human life and experience, society is less likely to flourish. A society may be secular in its procedures, and its law may be impartial as far as any specific religious ethic is concerned. But it will still need the argumentative grit of the worshipping mentality to keep it asking moral questions, and not reducing those questions to issues about majority opinion. This surely is one of the most important distinctions between a fully lawful democracy and a majoritarian tyranny, whether religious or secular. And if what I've suggested here is right, religious liberty involves a recognition of the freedom to worship in the extended sense of shaping a life in public in response to what are believed to be the pressures of a reality beyond the immediate social context. But it would be wrong to conclude this discussion without a word about the significance of worship in the most familiar sense. The freedom to spend time in attention to something held to be mysterious, nurturing, elusive, and sometimes frustrating, tantalizing, and inexhaustible. That's the freedom of worship. It means the freedom of a contemplative Carmelite nun to gaze in silence at the altar for an hour. The freedom of the Jew on Shabbat. The freedom of a whole community gathered for an hour or two to sing, listen, and articulate what is longed for. It is, you could say, an extreme version of the freedom we encounter in music or theatre. The freedom that comes from permission not to be useful or productive, but just to be human and to allow that humanity to come for a moment more fully into focus. For the religious believer, such a coming into focus is inseparable from standing in a certain light, trusting in a certain presence, simply looking into a darkness that is paradoxically illuminating and generates new vision. The secular observer is free to see this as a waste of time. Yet, limiting or abolishing such time-wasting is an essentially violent project because it shuts down vital areas of human imagination, the sense of responsibility to something more than naked power, 
the sense of irony that allows human power to be put into perspective, the sense of hope that reminds us that the way things happen to be today is not set in stone. And this mixture of responsibility, irony and hope creates what's been described by one modern philosopher as a difficult liberty. The freedom to keep alert to the double dangers of modernity. One danger is the dominance of an external authority that claims universal and final rationality. The authority, at worst, of fascism and communism. And the other danger is the sanctifying of an inner authority of individual authenticity and ambition. Religious liberty, the freedom of worship, helps to make political liberty difficult in this constructive and good sense. When it fully understands what it's about, it will not be looking for a religious consensus which itself can become an agent of coercion and control. It will simply seek to leave the question there for the human imagination. What if there are priorities radically unconcerned with success or profit or popularity? What if the deepest human dignity is visible in the sovereign freedom to adore and delight? What would human society look like if that were true? Difficult, yes. But what if the alternative is the frozen conformity of some imagined end of history, where no unsettling moral questions could ever be asked? You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. From Swansea in Wales, this is the second of this year's BBC Wreath Lectures with Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. This year's Wreath Lectures focus on the Four Freedoms, a concept that came from U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt. Freedom means the supremacy of human rights everywhere. Our support goes to those who struggle to gain those rights and keep them. In his State of the Union speech in 1941, he argued there are four essential freedoms that all people are owed. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. In this lecture, Williams argues the concept of religious freedom has been watered down in the West. 
He says freedom of worship must include freedom to express religious conviction publicly and politically. Here is the second part of his lecture, followed by a Q&A hosted by the BBC's Anita Anand. Thank, thank you so much. First of all, I'm sure a lot of people will be astonished at some of the stories that you've told this evening that they don't know about, and one that sticks in my mind is the green nuns versus the oil companies. I mean, who's winning in that? Um, the court is still looking at it. The, the oil company is clearly rather worried and worried about the precedent that a judgment might set. Right. I, I was really interested in your choice, your very careful choice of words. I mean, you, you talked about this um, lukewarm tolerance in a somewhat disparaging way. But I wonder whether the religious freedom that you're demanding can only exist in a pool of lukewarm tolerance, because otherwise, you know, it's the Goldilocks zone, if you like, you know, otherwise it's too hot or it's too cold. That, that may not be perfect, but it's the best that mm. you've got. Yes, there are worse options than tolerance, certainly. But my worry is when two things happen. One is when tolerance itself becomes the only moral value that really survives in discussion. And when people talk about moral education in school or um, interfaith dialogue, the word tolerance seems to carry a huge amount of weight, and I'm not sure it's load-bearing in quite that way. We need something a little bit more robust, which leads me to the second point, which is my worry about the lukewarmness is that it can be simply a patronising, marginalising strategy that says, well, you know, if a few eccentrics are so determined to carry on these outmoded and outrageous practices and beliefs, we can probably squeeze them in somewhere and hope they die off. It's, it's the granny flat view of religious tolerance. It's the granny flat of religious tolerance. So that's that, another... <laughs> you, you do have a rather wonderful way with words. We're going to open it up to uh, the wonderful Swansea audience. So, uh, yes, first question over here, please. Um, hello, I'm Christine Allen. I'm the director of CAFOD, the um, Catholic Development Agency. I'm really intrigued because I think in some areas of the public sphere, there is a degree of acceptance of religious and faith voices, but less so in others. I'm thinking particularly when uh, church and religious leaders spoke out against the government's Rwanda plans or uh, on the rising use of food banks or even our failure as a country to keep our climate change and aid promises, uh, where we've been told in no uncertain terms to stick to our knitting. What's your reflection on that? Um, I've never been a great fan of knitting myself. I, and I think there are, there are perhaps um, other kinds of knitting we ought to be taking up, like knitting the social fabric a bit more securely. But the point's a good one, because it seems to me that these are areas precisely where people with strong convictions about what's due to human beings can ask questions that might otherwise be muffled in a calculus of advantage and disadvantage, that doesn't really look into the eyes of the people who are actually experiencing what we're deciding about. To be honest, that is my greatest worry, that so many decisions are made by people who generalise and abstract the people they're speaking of. One of the things which quite often religious leaders of all communities have been able to do in a succession of public controversies around the migration issue, around poverty and so forth, has been to say, well, we do have some local first-hand experience. We do have some narratives of how this works and how this feels and what doesn't work. And we need to know that those particulars are somewhere in the mix, and that matters. Do you know, I, I spy 
with my little eye, <laughs> and you know I'm coming to you. In, in, in our front row, we have the First Minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford, here. Do you mind if I just put you on the spot? Um, if we... <laughs> I mean, it's too late to say you do mind now. Uh, <laughs> what do you think the relationship should be between those who govern and those who deal in matters more spiritual? Well, I think it ought to be characterised by a frankness. It ought to be characterised by a willingness to listen. It ought to be characterised by a consciousness of the unequal distribution of power in our society. Because if I'd had a question for Rowan rather than a comment, it would have been to ask him how he thinks that the sort of freedoms that he has so uh, persuasively set out, how can you actually make those bite in a society where, as R.H. Tony uh, said, freedom for the carp is death to the minnow? That's exactly the, the kind of question which I think I would want to leave in people's minds from this evening. I, I wish I knew how to do it which is possibly one reason why I'm, I'm not a member of your cabinet. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, one of the things which I would think any self-respecting religious community ought to be pressing all the time is just this issue of power. We live in Wales, in the UK, in the world generally, in a context of colossally inequitable power. And to talk about freedom in this context, especially freedoms that are focused on the, if you like, the consumer liberties of a rather small sliver of the global population, sounds a bit hollow. So I would want to say, with any issue, start your analysis by saying, where does the power lie? Who has the advantage? And what are they frightened of? And then you may begin to get somewhere. It's radio, so you don't see this, but I see um, a host of heads nodding uh, in agreement. Let's take a, another question here. Okay, thank you. It's Sarah Harvey Sharuzi. I'm the daughter of a reluctant Muslim and a confused mum, born in Brighton, but proud to be living in Wales for 33 years. Do you think the church is globally, and that's a bit unfair, isn't it? But do you think the church is really making enough of a case for the freedom of worship? Can I just come back? What, what is in your mind when you're asking the question? I love worship. I'm on the happy, clappy end of the Christian spectrum. I don't hear the church's voice loud enough in the media at the moment. It okay. frustrates me. One of the things that I often want to say to others in the church and in other religious communities is that the worst message we can convey to the society around us is embarrassment and anxiety. And quite often, religious communities convey that. We're worried, and we'd like everybody to know just how worried we are. And what I've been talking about in terms of trying to take part actively and even transformingly in a public conversation is, I would say, the, the opposite of that. We're not there because we're worried. We're there because we, we believe we have some gift to offer into the conversation. Amen. <laughs> and and that's, that's what motivates. So if the question for... Systems of power is something like what you were afraid of. Something not dissimilar might come back to the churches and maybe other religious communities. What are we afraid of? Actually, we are quite grateful for the horizons in which we live that we believe given to us. We believe that there is something about this in and through which humanity grows into a fuller, more human condition. 
we'd like to talk about this. We'd like to share this. I was really interested, you know, this global idea. Are there some parts of the Anglican communion that are fully engaged with having the conversation and other parts that do not want to have the conversation under any circumstances? And I'm thinking, of course, you know, I'm thinking about gay marriage and I'm thinking of of the pushback that's coming from Anglican churches in Africa where they Mm. don't want to discuss it. It's just, it's it's done, it's dusted, that's the way it is. Mm. Mm. Yes, we are, of course, in a very, often a very embittered, very polarised conversation about sexuality within the worldwide Anglican community. What I often thought was my primary job when I was in the job I used to do was to try to begin to get the common ground of accepting simply the legal freedom and the human dignity of people agreed. We do disagree about the ethics of certain actions and lifestyles. I wish it were otherwise, but that's there. Can we then move forward at all on saying there is a possibility of saying we ought to be resisting oppressive, dehumanising laws which put the lives and well-being of LGBTQ plus people at risk? Can we push back on that together? Is gay marriage ever going to be accepted by the Anglican Church in your lifetime? It already has been accepted by quite a few Anglican churches around the world, hence some of our problems. I think the trajectory is very much in one direction at the moment. So we shall see. I I don't know is the the simple answer. I see where the trajectory seems to be going in numbers and generational attitudes and so forth. Mm -hmm. So change would not surprise me. Azim Ahmed, Muslim Councillor Wales. Um, So I wanted to pick up on the conversation of how do we defend and advocate for religious freedoms beyond good moral debate, because effectively that still in a way appeals to the majority, and if not the majority, to the state. So how can we as communities, especially those which are on the lower end of the power spectrum, defend those rights, attain those rights and keep those rights? As you say, it's not too difficult for the secular world in general to think Well, religious beliefs help people to be nice. I would want to say religious belief helps people to be serious, imaginative, even courageous. And that seriousness, that imagination, that courage may sometimes be an uncomfortable presence in society. But the confident response is to say, well, here we are with a reality which is indeed not the same as the secular environment. Um, Yes, the the woman in the orange, please, yeah. Hi, I'm... Christine Abbas, and I'm the Baha'i representative on the Interfaith Council for Wales. And I'm sitting in front of, in a huge font, and it says freedom of worship. But I don't know how many people, particularly children and young people, actually know they have this freedom, (laughs) because I don't think they're experiencing worship. How do we bring that alive? That's a wonderful question, and I think it relates directly to what we've just been talking about. To see what human faces look like engaged in worship is a crucial educational element in familiarising young people, students, with what humanity does and how humanity works. And again, I worry about the way in which sometimes religious education focuses on ideas rather than practice, on system rather than habit. And if I were impossibly trying to design a religious studies syllabus, 
I would want to take people to witness worship a lot and say, this is what it looks like. Don't panic. (laughs) This will seem very strange in any number of ways. Okay, get used to it. It's like your first time at a concert or your first time in the theatre. Concerts are very strange behaviours. Theatre is a very eccentric thing. Why, you know, if there's somebody up there talking, why can't I interrupt or ask questions? Shh. (laughs) Religious worship is a very strange, a very eccentric thing. All right, get used to it. It's something human beings do. And just as at a good concert, you might want to watch the faces around you. Thank you. The woman in the green. Thank you. Cathy Riddick from Wales Humanists. Now, we talked about education and daily acts of Christian worship are a legal requirement in all of our schools and children don't have the right to withdraw themselves from it. Is that law not denying freedom of worship by failing to uphold the freedom to not worship? There's a balance here between the exposure of young people to the human fact of religiousness, religious practice, religious worship and the imposition of forms of worship. My sense of how a lot of schools manage this is that they generally negotiate that boundary fairly well. I know that's not everybody's experience, but you'd expect me to say that, (laughs) being who I am. I think it's important that the presence of religious activity of some kind within the educational institution that's built in just as part of an educational literacy. That needs to be held on to. Thank you. My name is Timothy Cho. I'm Open Doors spokesperson for North Korea. It took me over 5,200 miles and 34 years escaping from North Korea to come to this lecture and address this question for you today. I am very grateful. <laughs> Thank you. As someone who grew up in totalitarian North Korea and who was persecuted and imprisoned four times during my journey, I understand well what it's like not to have religious or political freedom. As you look at the world today, isn't it difficult not to be pessimistic that political freedom, which Lord Acton said, is the basis of religious freedom, is under threat. We know there are over 360 million persecution globally for their faith around the world. If that is right, what role should the church and religious people play? Thank you, and thank you very much for being willing to contribute from an experience which I think is probably unique in this, in this room. Thank you. You're right that at the moment, the statistics around religious persecution globally are deeply depressing. This is an escalating problem. It's important in that connection, I think particularly, for people of all faiths to make sure that they're there for all others. I remember discussions that we used to have, again, back in the old job, uh, between people from different... Is it the job that dare not speak its name? You said Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Yes, um, it, it's. I need trigger warnings okay. with it. <laughs> um, but what, what we used to talk about was can we have sufficient interfaith consensus that if the mosque is attacked, 
the Christian Jewish communities will be there. If the synagogue is attacked, the Muslim and Christian communities will be there. If a church is attacked, the Muslim and Jewish communities will be there. And you know, you can extend that to other communities, but to make sure that we are all there for each other in that context. Now, that means, I think, globally, looking at all the varieties of persecution, even the ones we'd rather not remember. It means for, I think, Christian advocates being crystal clear that the situation, let's say, of Christians in northern Nigeria is appalling. It means looking at what's happening to Muslims in large parts of India, and so on, and so on. And also not to forget the very significant role of the spiritual, social, and political reality of indigenous peoples. We don't often bring them into the picture, do we? And yet, of course, part of the outrage of the treatment of indigenous peoples in North America and Australia, it's about their freedom to manifest a set of convictions about the balance of the world, a really integral identity which is neither just religious nor just political or social. And I would want to put them into this religious freedom spectrum as well. Thank you. Question here. Andrew Brown, a mere journalist. You've talked a lot about moral disagreement, but the problem in the world is moral conflict when these uh, non-negotiable views come up against one another. And the problem then is not how do we talk about our problems, but what do we do about them? So what would you do about ISIS or about Vladimir Putin? I don't actually believe that ISIS or Vladimir Putin ought to be indulged, colluded with, yielded to. I do actually believe that the government of Ukraine is right to resist invasion, and have said so, and would say it again as loudly as you'd like me to. Thank you to our wonderful audience here in Swansea, and a very special thank you to our second wreath lecturer for this Four Freedoms series, Dr. Rowan Williams. You are listening to Ideas and to the annual Wreath Lectures from the BBC. This is the second in the series, featuring Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, on the state of freedom of religion today. The next lecture is from Darren McGarvey, a Scottish writer and musician. His lecture focuses on the third of Roosevelt's four freedoms, freedom from want. In January 2013, at the end of a seven-day drinking spree, about to open another bottle that would hopefully tide me over until the off-licence opened, a woman whom I have never met sent me a message on social media. It was a link to an article that would snap me out of my drunken daydream. Six harsh truths that will make you a better person. I figured it would pass some time and began reading. By the time I got to number one on the list, everything inside you will fight improvement. The urge to continue drinking quite simply left me. What had occurred was the profound psychic shift only a high targeted dose of the truth can bring about. For years, I had dined out on my trauma, my losses, my grief and my anger. 
using them as excuses of varying plausibility to justify my descent into alcoholism. It's true that I faced significant adversities in my youth. They had a lasting impact on my character and emotional nature, for better and for worse. But at some point, I lost touch with the idea that a better life was even available to me. And after I finished the piece, I poured what remained of my alcohol down the kitchen sink and told my long-suffering flatmate I was done with the drinking. And save for a few slips along the way, I have been alcohol and drug-free for most of the last 10 years. How was this achieved? Where did the power to stop drinking come from? A power which had eluded me almost every day of my 20s. Did it come from the state? Was it supplied by the market? I got sober in run-down community centres and churches where no experts or professionals were present. Indeed, my many interactions with public services played some part in my adopting the false belief that I would never get free of addiction. Instead, I got well in rooms where the advice dispensed came from other sufferers of the problem and not from medical men and women or well-meaning theorists. I learned how to traverse the greatest challenge I have ever faced as an individual merely by following the suggestions of those who had gone before me. I am well aware that there are those whose challenges are too profound to assure medical expertise, whose economic adversity is too acute to simply think your way out of. But in my experience, there are lessons as to how anyone within reason might still better orient themselves in the face of a personal problem rooted in systemic inequality so as to lighten the individual burden and make themselves more useful in the wider struggle for freedom from want. That's Darren McGarvey, Scottish writer and musician, from the next BBC Wreath Lecture. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in this episode or in any other, you can do that on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, where, of course, you can always get our podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter. This series was adapted for ideas by Matthew Lazen Ryder. Special thanks to Laura Lawrence and the BBC World Service. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval and Austin Pomeroy. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.